Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11 through 17. We read, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bier bearer stood still, and they said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Is Jesus the promised Savior? Is he the Messiah to come? Is he the one who is going to deliver his people from captivity, from darkness to light, to destroy their greatest enemies and deliver them into peace with God once and for all? Is he the one who is going to provide for the greatest needs of humanity? This is the central question that marks this passage, these, this groups of text here in Luke chapter 7. The very next section has this central question. John the Baptist sends his messengers, his disciples, to Jesus to ask this very important question. Are you the one? Wait, John the Baptist is asking that? But he said he was the one. He, he like preached the, as a forerunner, right? <clears throat> but now John is in jail. Remember, John the Baptist preaching was, I mean, it was a lot of doom and gloom. It was, I mean, he cut to the chase. Behold, the axe is laid at the root, ready to be tossed into the fire. Behold, the refiner is coming. It was a, a picture of, of a judgment to come, a glorious Messiah who was going to come. And very much, I think, I think John still has that very political Messiah in the mind. He's going to come. He's going to remove this Roman oppression. He's going to cast them down, just like he did Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. I think all of that still is kind of permeating John's mind. And then he hears of Jesus' ministry. And it's not that. It's not Jesus raising up an army with swords to go and throw down the Roman army. It's not another Maccabean revolt. So, did I miss something? Is John thinking, what's going on here? This seems to be a lot about peace. And he's preaching a lot, teaching, but I don't see the fighting. I don't don't see this uprising that I, that I thought would come. Jesus often turns the tables on our expectations. Because Jesus alone knows what we need more than we do. He knows what our greatest enemies truly were. And though John could not see the defeat of the enemies he thought they faced. Little did he know that bit by bit Jesus was defeating the greatest enemies of all. And perhaps there is no greater enemy other than sin that lingers over humanity than that of death. And so right before he gets into this whole discourse with the messengers of John the Baptist, Jesus is showing he has come to defeat enemies. The greatest one being death itself. Jesus began his ministry back in Nazareth, his hometown, remember? And when he did so, 
he preached to them what? That the promised Messiah to come was who? Me. Today, this scripture, talking about Isaiah 61, this scripture is being fulfilled of me, he said. Now, what does Isaiah 61 read? Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 61. What Jesus said was coming to pass. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It's amazing, this passage, that he chooses to, to apply to himself here. This passage that foreshadowed the Messiah to come. And Jesus said at Nazareth, this is what's coming. This is who I am. This is being fulfilled in your reading today. And this is not exactly what we're seeing even in our passage. Him comforting the morning. Him taking ashes and giving a headdress of beauty. Him taking the, those who are mourning and weeping and giving them a spirit of praise. That's not what, exactly what we would see in our text today. But his hometown rejected him. They ran him off. And they literally tried to push him off of a cliff, we're told. And he knew that that rejection would come. He knew that they would reject who he was, though he fulfilled the messianic prophecies of Isaiah. This lack of faith in Israel was not uncommon. It had marked so much of their history. And so at the very end, after they reject him, Jesus says something very fascinating to them. He says this in Luke chapter 4, verse 24 to 27. Right after they rejected him, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet's acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up in three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, mm -hmm. in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And so he is, re he is talking to them about their rejection, and how their rejection has marked the constant unbelief of Israel in so many ways, rejecting the prophets, rejecting the Lord in their actions. And yet, God was still compassionate and faithful, even in their unbelief, and instead was going to Gentiles, was going to those who were outcast and poor and desolate places, and there the Lord was meeting them. And isn't it remarkable that right after his sermon, there in Luke 6, the first two things that we see is the Lord caring for a Gentile centurion, like Naaman was, mm -hmm. and caring for a widow. Like the widow of Zerah. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the same Lord who did those things then is the same Lord that's speaking in this passage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm -hmm. And he's showing that through his actions once again. Luke has organized the messages of his gospel account and the historical details and the events of Jesus' life in such a way that Theophilus, the original reader, and each and every one of us who would later read this book, would be absolutely certain that Jesus indeed was the Christ. That's the whole point. The whole point of this book, Luke said, was so that you might be certain of the faith that you've received. That Jesus is the Lord of glory. That he is the Savior of humanity. That he is the King of Kings. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. That he is our only hope in life and death. That's who Jesus is. He is humanity's only hope, both in life and in death. And I believe that's precisely what this text will put out for us today as we go through it and move through it. The first thing that we see here in this passage is a heartbreaking picture. You see this in verse 11 and 12. Soon afterward, 
Often some translations read the following day. He went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So, Nain, it, this is the only time it's mentioned in the whole Bible. The only time this city is mentioned is about 25 miles south of Capernaum, where Jesus had just healed the centurion's servant. So, I mean, Jesus is moving here. But Nain, it's a middle of nowhere. This small southern Galilean city, middle of nowhere, really not significant at all, has no other trajectory in the scriptures. There's no like special thing I can tell you that happened back in the Old Testament in Nain. There's nothing. It's just it's a desolate, nowhere, small town village, and Jesus just so happens to show up there. Now at this point, we're told he's got quite the followers. Says that the crowds. Probably the ones that he had preached to back in Luke 6. Those who had just heard of the centurion servant. Man, they're following Jesus. They're interested. And what's he going to do next? And you can imagine probably the murmurs among them. Why in the world are we going to Nain? Like, he really should take this show to Jerusalem. Like, what, what, what are we doing going to this place? There's nothing there. There's nothing significant at all about Nain. Why are we going there? But Jesus is going Faithfully preaching within his Galilean ministry. This is where the primary portion of, from Luke basically 4 through 9 is about. Jesus' Galilean ministry there. He goes to this nowhere town. They're following along. But before he even gets to the gates of the city, which the gates of the city oftentimes, like, like for instance, Nain did not have a large enough town to even have city walls. But this small gate really was simply the place, right, kind of the entry into the city. It was where most of the, the kind of the elders of the city would sit. It was kind of the place of a public forum, a public blessing. But it was the place of being in and out of the city. The place of entry into communion and fellowship with the city. And so before he even gets to the gate of name, we're told that he spots from a distance a funeral procession that's taking place. The young man there has died. But not just any young man. He was the only son of a widow. This is the worst possible thing that could happen to a woman in this period. In this period, there were not many ways, if any, for a woman to receive any kind of income or care. She was dependent upon the provision and protection of a husband. And without a husband, her son. But now she's lost, beloved. This woman would have been seen as helpless and hopeless. This was the worst possible thing that could happen in the society, which is why so many others from the community there have joined into this procession because they realize the level of grief and despair that this moment reflects. This woman would have been seen as helpless and hopeless without provision and protection in this society. This was the saddest picture you can imagine. I can only imagine. Like I, I watched my grandmother lose a child and my mother, and I've seen that pain. I have sat by the bedsides of people who lost their child. And it is, it is a level of grief I don't wish upon my worst enemy. It is the hardest, most terrible place to enter into as a minister. Because grief is hard enough, but when it is a child, to try to care for a mother and a father is, it's, it's hell. It's hell. And not only that, but this is this woman's only son. Her only son. Her only child. So beyond even the provision and the protection, this is a mother who's lost her only child. I just, I want you to really embrace 
the, le of, the level of despair and terror and just horror and sadness that this picture begins with. It, it can't get much sadder than the way this story starts. This woman's world was shattered. And I can promise you she was at her lowest point. And it wasn't like then, like they didn't like wait a while to get the, the body buried. That means he, he probably died that day, that morning. And they would have um, did some perfuming, some rituals to help prepare the body. But just within a few hours, they would have sought to put him uh, into the grave. Outside the city. That's where they were buried. That's where funeral plots would be buried outside the city. Why? Because their body was, uh, was ritually unpure, unclean. So it couldn't stay in the city or it would defile the city. So it would go out to a family plot. So this is raw. This is soon. This is real. This is happening in the moment. She's not really had time to resonate on this much. This is in the deepest moment of the pit of despair. And at her lowest point, Jesus just so happens to be there. Coincidence? Not for a second. Not for a second. What in the world would he have any business being in a little town in the middle of nowhere with this singular woman who's just in the lowest point of her life? And there's only one answer. It's his compassion. Psalm 34, verse 18, we read, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. It is in our deepest, lowest, saddest point that so often people think, man, God's not there. God couldn't be there. And precisely that's often where he's at his nearest. It's when he's at his closest. And anyone who has faithfully stood by the Lord and held fast to him, in the midst of despair, can truly say that after walking through the fiery furnace, they could say with Nebuchadnezzar as he looked into the fire, there he was with me. One like a son of God. There he was with me. In the midst of the fire. In the midst of the storm. In the midst of the lion's den. He was there with me. And then he shows remarkable compassion. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He said to her, do not weep. You see, it was customary for the, the closest next of kin to lead the processional. To lead the funeral processional. And so she would have been by herself in the front, covered in, in black clothing, veiled. Walking out, leading the processional to the plot where she was going to put her son in the ground. And I love this. This is one of my favorite lines. The Lord saw her and had compassion. Felt compassion. Notice the word that, that Luke uses. And the Lord saw her. This is the first time in any of the Gospels that the word chorios is used directly to the Lord, for Jesus. Why? Because later on, what's the crowd going to say? A great prophet has risen up amongst us. But Luke writes precisely and specifically and purposefully to make it very clear. He's not just some prophet. He is chorios. He is the Lord. The Lord saw her. The same Lord who was the Lord of Psalm 34, 18, who draws near to the brokenhearted. He saw her. And he had compassion on her. I want you to note something so important in this passage. Did you notice not one time does anybody ask Jesus for help? Not one time did this woman go, oh, oh thank you for being here. What, what timing? I, I need you to help out. Notice not one time Jesus is sitting off with immense compassion and saying, ah, I just wish they'd ask me. I would help if they would just ask, if they would just like grant me permission. If they would just, if they would just come to me in faith, then I would help them. 
Then I would have compassion. You don't see that at all. In compassion, he moves sovereignly, completely, of his own will and doing. They don't have to invite him into this funeral procession. He enters into it on his own accord. On the basis of nothing other than his perfect compassion. Every single part of this story results from his compassion. Why? Because every part of this story actually reflects the gospel. He acted towards a grieving woman who was helpless and hopeless. She did not know him. Probably didn't even know who he was, even if she did see him. She moves towards a dead son who cannot respond to him. He's dead. What get, what's the dead man going to do? Ask him to come into his heart? He's dead. He can do nothing. He has no volition at all in this part until after the Lord acts, until after the Lord does something. Everything from start and finish is an act of a God who in compassion moves towards his people to bring them to life, to bring them joy in the midst of their despair, to bring life from death. This is the God. It is all him moving towards his people so that they can move to him. My friends, Jesus is moved by nothing else than his immense compassion, pity, and love. It wasn't earned. It wasn't asked for. Just think about that oftentimes. When you think you need to earn his compassion, when you think that he does not look upon you with immense love and care, when you think that your salvation was based upon you doing stuff or coming to him or saying anything. No, my friends, your salvation is based upon this fact. He is compassionate and he moved towards you when you could not. When you could not. He sovereignly chose in immense, in immense compassion to draw near to this broken widow and act in fantastic grace and loving kindness. My friend, if Christ's compassion towards us was based upon our actions towards Him, we would never know that compassion because it would never happen. If Christ's compassion towards you was based upon your actions towards Him, guess what? He'd never have known His compassion. Because you would have been the widow marching to the grave. You would have been the dead son lying on the mirror unable to do anything for yourself. You cannot earn His compassion. It is not merited. It's merely the fact that He is a loving, kind, God, gracious beyond all measure, who chose to look upon sinners with immense grace and move towards them in compassion. Everything about your salvation is based upon two realities. He is a God who is compassionate and he is a God who acts. And because of those two things, you can be saved. The vast majority of God's mercies, my friends, came to you well before you ever saw them. Mm -hmm. How many mercies of your life have come without you ever have sought them? How many answers to prayers have come to your life without you ever praying? His mercies come well before you ever seek them. And if you do seek them, it was a mercy that He'd given you to enlighten you to pray for those things. My friends, from start to finish, our salvation is the immense declaration that our God is gracious. He is compassionate, full of steadfast love. Every part of it. <coughs> he says to her, do not weep. Well, that doesn't sound like that. Listen, I want you to know, if you are consoling Anyone who's lost a child. That's not the thing to say. I, I would not advise you to say, you should be crying. We'll leave that to Jesus. Why? Why? This would have been a shocking statement because 
mourning was actually the only right response in this time. And I, and I still want to make that clear. I still believe that mourning over death is still the right response, even for believers. Because death is a reflection of a fractured cosmos. One fractured by sin. That's put out of line that Christ is putting back right. So even though we weep, we're not without hope. That's the difference. But we see it is still proper to weep and the reality or the face of death. Because it is unnatural. It is wrong. But the reason why the Lord can say this, and the reason why it's so important, is because the words of the Lord are never an empty sympathy. They are the words that provide comfort because they are words that are marked with the power to accomplish it. The reason why he can say, do not weep, is because he also has the power to change the weeping. To remove the, the reason for the weeping. He alone has the power to do it. His words are never empty sympathies. When you read the promises of Christ, when you, when you read the Psalms to comfort your heart, you're not reading empty Hallmark cards to try to make you feel better in the moment. You are reading words marked with power capable of carrying your heart to that place. Carrying your heart to joy. Carrying your heart to peace. Carrying your heart to salvation. These are not empty sympathies. Thanks be to God that Christ is not a mere religious leader who seeks to, as, as Marx would say, be an opium, a, a, a tranquilizer that carries us all to our own despair. No, his words are marked with power, which is precisely why he can say, do not weep. He doesn't say, do not weep and then walk away. He can say, do not weep, because his, through his word, he has the power to change, to remove the weeping. And that's precisely what we see in verses 14 and 15. He came up, and he touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, well that's interesting, He's talking to a dead person. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man set up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. He walks up, do not weep, and he touches the beer. The beer is this basically open cast. It kind of looks like a stretcher, basically with a little bit of concurved size. It would have laid the body. It's open face. The body would have been wrapped at this point. But he comes and he touches it. But these beers had long poles extended from it that would have been carried on the shoulders of the carers. And those poles preserved them from touching the actual beer itself, which would have made them ritually unclean in this society. It would have made them ritually impure. They would have had to go through a very long cleansing process. And Jesus goes right up to it and touches it. <laughs> because you can't stain Christ. You can't make him impure. And, and I want to also make something very clear. There were some people, there were some teachers that I've heard today who will say things like, Jesus broke the law for the sake of love. That's damnable. Jesus did not break the law. He broke the law. He would have been a savior. Right. Jesus has been doing something throughout the Gospels that's been very helpful. Jesus has actually illustrated what the true intent of the law and purpose was. And what he showed, remember on the Sabbath when he was feeding his disciples on the Sabbath? Like, oh, you're breaking the law. You're doing these things. And what did Jesus say? Which one of you, losing a sheep on the Sabbath, will not go to rescue them? Right. Because technically that kind of work would have broken the ceremonial law. But mercy, acts of mercy, precede mm -hmm. and supersede mm -hmm. acts of ceremony. Mm -hmm. So the reason why Jesus can't break the law is because his mercy, his act of mercy, actually meets the greater purpose of the law, yeah. mm -hmm. which was to love God and love neighbor. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the ceremonial act has no place here right. because his act of mercy supersedes it. So Jesus in this moment is not breaking the law, not putting off the law. He's showing the greater point of the law, which was to show love for neighbor. And in this act of amazing mercy, he touched it. And the bearer stood still. You've got to imagine, they don't know what's going on right now. First
first of all, we don't even know who this guy is. He's telling this lady not to weep, which doesn't seem right. We've literally hired a couple mourners who are here to weep, which would have been was actually required. In Jewish tradition, they would have had to have at least two mourners to hire for each um, uh, funeral. So you got these public mourners happening. These bearers are like, oh, we don't want to touch it. We reach out the And this guy just walks up and puts his hand on it. And now he's talking to it. Which, once again, in Jewish law, it's bad to talk to dead people. Necromancy is wrong. Shouldn't do it. Wrong. Don't be trying to tap into your cousin who passed away six years ago. Don't do that. It's that time of year. Don't do it. So everything Jesus is doing would have made these bearers go, ah, what's happening? So they just kind of put it down. Like, yeah, right. What's going on? This is weird. This is strange. He should be ritually unclean. Now he's, now he's talking to this dead kid. And yet, in a single statement, a single statement, young man, I say to you, arise. And in a single moment, that dead man comes alive. With a single word, a single spoken word, he brings death, life from death. You see with what power and ease that Jesus has over our greatest enemy? Just a single word, and he undoes it. A single word, he brings life. But notice, there could be no life without his word. In all three of Jesus' resurrections account, here is the first one, the raising of Jairus' daughter is the second one, and the raising of Lazarus. Every time he says, arise or come out, and they come. Because if he does not speak, there is no power. The power is marked by his word, which is why faith comes from hearing, and hearing the what? The word of Christ. So you can't just live a good life and make people come to Jesus. You gotta tell them. You gotta speak the gospel. You gotta speak the word. Because this is where the power follows, where death goes to life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. With a single statement, this boy, all of his sinews and fibers are filled with life. All of the blood coursing through his veins, every neuron firing from his brain is now immediately brought back, immediately brought into place with a single statement. He has brought a dead man to life. And I want you to know that the same power of his word to bring a physically dead man to life mm -hmm. It's exactly the same thing he does with us who are spiritually dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With the power of his word. Because I want you to know, my friends, just like this young man laying on the, the, the beer dead, going to the grave, going to be buried, going to be put away forever, that's precisely where you and I, each and every one of us were. Spiritually dead, headed to the grave forever. This is what the writer of Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead. Not like paralyzed. Not like not feeling good. Not a little sick. Not a little motion sickness. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of power of the air. The spirit that is now working the sons of obedience. Among whom we all. That's everybody. You're all a part of this today. If you didn't think you were dead in sin and trespasses. You were. Yeah. Every one of them. And everyone else in this world outside of Jesus is dead in their sins. Not just broken, they're dead in their sins and trespasses. Among whom we all have lived the passage of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You are headed to the grave of judgment. You are on the way. You're on the bear, beer, being carried to destruction, to judgment. That's your condition apart from Christ. Hopeless, helpless. It's the saddest picture you can think of. A lot like our story. But God. Mm -hmm. But God. Why? Because he's got to initiate. He's got to be the one to go. He's got to be the one to act. His compassion has got to go. Because we can't. Mm. But God. That's your gospel. But God. Yeah. That's your testimony. But God. That's your life. But God. Mm -hmm. But God. 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, let's make that clear, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. He puts that there already. Why? Because it can't be more clear. Yeah. What is the reason that you are saved today if you are? Grace. Mm -hmm. That's your answer. That's, that's the sole reason. Grace. In immense compassion, God looked upon me, dead sinner, who could not do anything, who could not ask for permission, who could not speak, who couldn't invite him in, couldn't do anything. He entered into my life. He came into my funeral procession. He made me alive by the power of his word. That's your testimony. Colossians 2.13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having what? Forgiven us all of our trespasses. Why? Because the wages of sin is yeah. death. So that's got to be dealt with if you're not going to die. That's what he did. And he made us alive together. He brought us spiritual life. This picture that you read about in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, Revelation 20, it calls this the first resurrection. Uh -huh. This is the first resurrection by which the second death has no power over. That's what this is. Uh -huh. You were made alive with Christ, carried to him. Paul says that we were uh, carried to heavenly places, lifted with him in heavenly places. Right, seated with him there. That is the first resurrection. This spiritual resurrection that happens in the moment that you are made alive in Christ. You are spiritually resurrected. Spiritually made alive. And the second resurrection is the physical resurrection that will be brought about because of what Christ has done. So both physically and spiritually, Christ is the resurrection and the life. Notice three things that this resurrection power does to this, this boy, this man. First, it gives him new life. That's marked his capacity to sit up. He can sit up. There's life there. He's been renewed. New life has entered into him. He is able to sit up. Secondly, notice what he does. He speaks. He talks. His mouth has been opened. So he's able, he's given new life. His mouth is open, and then what? The Lord gives him over to his mother. Well, well what was that about? Yeah. Who's he supposed to take care of? His mom. his mom. This was his place of obedience. So in the moment of resurrection, in regeneration, in newness of life, this boy is getting new life, the capacity to speak, and the, the means to obey. And that happened to each and every one of you as well. You were made alive. You were given newness of life. All of that deadness of sin was removed. New life invigorating you, causing you to sit up, to focus, to set your heart upon the Lord. It then opened your mouth to speak for Him, to speak truth. And then it sets you in the place of your obedience. That you would faithfully serve and follow Him. I want you to know something. This son was brought to life to be a blessing mm -hmm. to his mother. Mm -hmm. Jesus' compassion wasn't on so much the man. It wasn't like, I oh, and he saw the dead man, and he had compassion. He saw the mother. He saw her. God brought him to life to be a blessing to another. And that's the same thing that happened to you as well. You were given life to be blessings to others. Mm -hmm. You were given life to be caretakers of others. You were shown compassion to be compassionate to others. This is precisely what John says in 1 John 3.14. We know that we've passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love compassion. We love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. Mm. If you've been made alive through infinite love and compassion, your life's going to be marked by that. Your life's going to be moved and marked by why? Because you were saved to be a blessing to others. Which is precisely why in Philippians 1, we're going to turn there now, but in Philippians 1, 
Paul's writing to the church. Yeah. And he says, listen, I'd much rather go home. If, it means, if it's time for me to die, I'm okay with that. Because mm -hmm. I'd rather go be with Jesus. Mm -hmm. He says, however, if I am to stay, it is on account of your sake. Meaning, I've been here, I've been raised up, I've been given this life, I've been given this ministry for what? The blessing of others. Mm -hmm. You were made alive for good works, created in Christ's workmanship. Mm -hmm. This is that beautiful So, he's alive, and the right response happened. It freaks everybody out. We see this in verses, 15, uh, verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So that word fear there, that's, that's not like, oh, they were afraid. It's a reverential fear. A fear of holiness. They recognize they are in the presence of power. Holiness, and it moves them to humility and that righteous reverential fear that we don't want to mess with this guy because there's holiness, there's power that is there. And that's the right way to approach God is that sense of reverential awe and fear of his might and power. But notice, they don't quite get it yet, right? A great prophet has risen among us. Now, let's, let's be careful here, right? Because we don't want to think that they're just being a lack of faith here. In this period, right, the thought of God taking upon flesh among them was still kind of beyond their mind. And you can imagine that, right? I mean, to this day, we still struggle with the capacity of the incarnation. When they said a great prophet, that concept, great prophet, is actually pointing back to the messianic hope. Mm -hmm. Remember, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, a great prophet will arise who is even greater than I. And that's what they're talking about. Who else has raised people from the dead like this? Elijah and Elisha. Uh -huh. So they are looking at this and going, man, God's raising up another great prophet. Perhaps the Messiah himself is going to be a prophet. And he will be. Jesus has a prophetic office. He is the final and ultimate revelation of the word of God, which is what his prophetic office is. But he's greater than just. And I want to show you the differences between the thoughts of the resurrection accounts in the Old Testament that they were thinking of, as opposed to this account, those other two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. First, we see Elijah's uh, resurrection account in second, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 20, 22. Notice what Elijah has to do in order for resurrection to happen. He, that's Elijah, cried to the Lord. O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come unto him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came unto him again, and he revived. So what does Elijah have to do? Who does he have to call on? He's got to call on the Lord. He recognizes the power comes from who? The Lord. Only the Lord can bring this child to life. So Elijah calls out, Lord, you've got to do it. Lord, you've got to have this happen. And it said the Lord heard and the Lord did it. Hmm. Now listen to Elisha's account in 2 Kings 4. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed. So he went and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hand. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. In every situation, these other prophets had to call upon the Lord because they knew the power could only come from Him. Is that what Jesus did? Did Jesus say, all right, guys, let's pray to, let's pray to the Lord. Lord, help us now. No. He came up to him and said, young man, arise. And he came. Why? Because Luke was right. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. He's the Lord that gave the power to Elijah. He's the Lord that gave the power to Elisha to work through them to bring to life. And now he's on the scene himself, and he says it by the power of his word. You don't need, like, somebody who want to see, oh, where did Jesus say directly, I am God. He acts like it. He does everything like God. What do you mean? He is the 
Son, which is bringing death to life. I love this. God has visited us. That word visited there is episkeptomai. It's where we get the word episkopos for overseer or elder. And episkeptomai means the intentional choice to draw near to care for and meet someone's needs. It is an intentional choice to enter into someone's pain and meet their needs. That's what God's done, they said. God has intentionally chose to enter into this pain and meet a need. He's visited us. He's drawn near to us in the midst of our time of need. That's what the Lord is. He is our great episcopos, our great shepherd, our great overseer, who made the intentional choice to enter into our suffering, our death, our pain, and bring life in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. Simeon had said this when he saw the baby Jesus at the temple. Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited Episcopomai mm -hmm. and redeemed his people. Simeon saw in that baby the reality that these people were now celebrating. God had visited his people. He had intentionally chose to meet their needs in the midst of their darkest hour. He cared for them. But God had not drawn to them as a prophet. No, God the Son had come clothed in flesh to intentionally care for us and meet our greatest need. And this is precisely what Paul is getting at in that great hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because he came to meet our greatest need. Mm -hmm. Your greatest need, my friend, was to have your sin dealt with. Your greatest need was to have Satan destroyed and, and, and lost in the victory. Your greatest need was to have death triumphed over once and for all. And Jesus came and he did that. He intentionally came at the step of mine, our great overseer, our great shepherd, our great caretaker. He came down and he visited us in the midst of our need. And that shit right there, that word episcopos is what you used to describe what pastors are called to be. Uh -huh. And that just needs to orient you what you think about pastors. Mm -hmm. You need to get out of your mind this Western mindset that your pastor is meant to be a great preacher. Right. Your, master, your, your, your pastor is called to be a faithful preacher. But what the church needs most today is not great preachers. It needs great pastors. Mm. Men who draw near in intentional care to visit their people in times of need. Mm. For that is where they most reflect the Christ, the greater shepherd over them. Lord, help me in reverential fear of his power and compassion, this crowd does what? The only right thing to do, they go and tell everybody. They just saw a dead man come to life. They didn't just like, oh, that was cool. I know we've become numb with all of our like shows and television. We're like, oh, that was kind of cool. On to the next stimulation. Step stimulant. They just saw a dead man come alive. They're going to tell everybody. That's what they do. When you saw the power of Christ and the compassion of Christ on display, there is only one right response. You've got to go tell people. Yeah. Go tell people. That's for you too. That's the only right response to what Christ has done for you in your life. To what you've seen Christ do a thousand times over in compassion and power is, I've got to go tell people. Like, I cannot not tell people. This is not just the next great episode. This is amazing of what Christ has done. And I want everyone to know about this. I want everyone to know of this compassion and power that Christ alone has. Amen. He has shown us his glory in raising us from death to life. So that we would go and both tell 
and demonstrate His compassion to the world around us. Which is why we are told in Scripture that the lifestyle, that this kind of lifestyle should mark His people. Notice, it says God has visited, episkeptomai, intentionally chose to go and care and meet people's needs. That's what Christ has done for us. But I want you to see, that's the same standard He now calls His people to live. Yeah. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit episkeptomai. Yeah. Orphans and widows wear in their affliction and to keep oneself a stain in the world. That's what the, the faith of his people are to look like. It is to intentionally go and meet people in affliction and in their needs, those who cannot care for themselves. That should be the primary means by, that marks his people. It's what marked the early church, who would go and scour the forest of Rome at night to save babies that were dumped to die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would bring in widows into their church and, and create a benevolent fund to keep them and feed them and care for them. Oftentimes, the widows were actually employed by the church to take care of those babies that they went and rescued. Mm -hmm. And gave them meaning and purpose and value in the church and care. Why? Because we are these kind of people. Because we reflect Christ. Mm. Matthew 25, verse 35 through 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you at the scepter line. Mm. You visited me. Mm -hmm. I was in prison, and you came to me. This is what Christ did for us. And this is what we, having been given His life, are called to go to ourselves. We are called to be those who meet people in their need. Not to push them away, but to be those who constantly look upon a dying world with compassion. Or do we look upon a dying world and say they're getting what they deserve? How often we leave people as strangers and do not welcome them. How often, that, that picture of naked is shame. Mm -hmm. Naked is, remember in, in the garden, after they eat, they notice that they're naked. What's that about? It's about shame. Mm -hmm. And how often we allow people's nakedness continue to be exposed. Mm. We do nothing to seek to clothe them. We seek nothing to do like the father who went to the prodigal son covered in, in, in pigsty and dirt. He didn't clean him up at all. He just put the robe over him. So that he couldn't be shamed by the crowd. Is that us seeking to cover the shame or to merely expose it more? We are called to be like this because this is what Christ is for us. This text has revealed something very important, my friends. In this widow's life, her only hope was Jesus. And in this boy's death, his only hope was Jesus. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of the great catechisms that came out of the, the Reformation, the very opening question of the catechism, the catechisms were used to instruct children, instruct new converts to the faith. The very opening question is this, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, Christ Jesus, the Savior of my sin. He is our only hope in life and death. And this text answers this most important question. Because this is the question that you need to address every person you ever come across. You need to ask this question, what's your hope in life and death? And you may not have those kind of conversations, but they're good to have. Because mm -hmm. I promise you they're on the heart of every person. What is your only hope in life and death? And this is why we need to be able to answer, why is Christ our only hope in life and death? And there are four reasons this text gives us. First, because of his unquestionable sovereignty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Notice he just so happened to be there. He just shows up. It's not an accident. He's there on purpose for this specific reason. He's never out of place, and he's always on time. Why? Because he's in control of it. He's in control of it. You know, so often 
We want our lives to look like Exodus. We want fire coming down from heaven. We want sea splitting. When in reality, our life looks a whole lot more like Esther. But I want you to know, it was no less of a miracle to get Egypt or to get Israel out of Egypt than it was to get Esther in Xerxes' court. Mm. And God did them both. Because he's unquestionably sovereign. And the reason why that's so important about your hope is it because he can stop the procession of any person's path to the grave. Mm -hmm. That's why I love it. He stopped the procession. He stopped it from going to the grave. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he was just there. He showed up with no question. Nobody asked him. He just showed up. And our only hope for that, that wayward child you may have, the unbeliever in your family, the friends around you that you long to have for Jesus, the only hope that we have in that regard is his unquestionable sovereignty to stop any procession he chooses at any time from going to the grave. His timing is perfect. He can heal from any distance. He doesn't even need to be in the house like we saw in the centurion. Mm. He can heal from any distance, from any location. His heart is full of compassion, and he can do it. He has power and authority. He does not need to be to permission to come in. He will kick the door off the hinges of someone's life and change them in an instant because of his unquestionable sovereignty to do so. Mm -hmm. Our only hope for the salvation of the world and brothers around us is the fact that he is sovereign, that he can do it. He can do it. His placement is perfect. He makes no mistakes, no accidents. He's always on time, and that gives us great hope in life and death. Secondly, he is our only hope in life and death because of his remarkable compassion. My friend, our Lord Jesus Christ never changes. Mm. The same God, the same Jesus who saw this one with compassion, who healed that centurion's servant from a distance, is the same Jesus that you serve today. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. His heart is still as compassionate as when he was upon earth. His sympathy with sufferers is still as strong. Let us bear this in mind and constantly take comfort in it. Because there is not a friend or a comforter in this world that can be compared to Christ. He will never fail, never disappoint. He always takes interest in our sorrow. The book of Revelation literally says in Revelation 6 that he stores up our tears. Mm. Think of that. He knows you. He sees you. He hears you. How often in the book of Genesis do we see a, a woman like, like Ishmael, or excuse me, like Hagar, cast out with her child Ishmael? And how often the Lord comes to her and says, I have heard your eyes. She wasn't even in the covenant of the line. Yet his compassion still towards her. He lives to receive all who are weary and burdened. If they will come to him by faith, he will heal every brokenhearted. He, will, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he lives, greater, lives to do greater things than even these one day. He lives to come again to his people, to destroy death once and for all, and to wipe away tears forevermore. My friend, a bruised reed is not, does not break. A smoldering wick he does not put out. Do not question the compassion of the Lord. He is immensely compassionate. So often, we read our own level of compassion on him. And we are far less compassionate than he is. He is compassionate. And that gives me great hope. Thirdly, he is our only hope in life and death because of his unstoppable power. With a single word, he brought life from death. He cannot be stopped by Satan or his demons. He cannot be stopped by any authorities in this world. His power is unthwartable. It's unshakable. It's unstoppable. Pilate couldn't stop him. Herod couldn't stop him. Caesar couldn't stop him. The grave couldn't stop him. Satan couldn't stop him because he's unstoppable in his power. I want to put my hope in him who cannot be competed with. Mm -hmm. I want to put my hope in 
the one who can't be thrown down, who can't be defeated, who is always unstoppable in his power. For in Christ you will not find an Achilles heel. There is no point of weakness, no chink in the armor, unstoppable in his power. If he speaks it, it will come to pass. So why will you not trust in him and give your life to him who is powerful over all things, who suspends the cosmos by the power of his word, sustains it by the power of his word, yet so intimately, lovingly cares and guides that even the sparrow does not fall without him knowing so. He is powerful, unbelievably powerful. And lastly, he is our only hope in life and death because of his triumphant resurrection. As the song sings, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Because he rose from the grave, I can know with absolute certainty that there is hope, not just in life, but in death. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. Why? Because we will not just be made spiritually alive by Christ. We will be made physically alive in the second coming of the resurrection. We will be given new bodies, new life. We will live forever with physical bodies and glorified bodies and glorified spirit on a new heavens and new earth. Death does not get the final word in Christ. He is the life. Because in him there is no death. John chapter 5, verse 28 to 29, Jesus talks about the resurrection to come. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear what? His voice. And come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. They will hear on the day when he returns, just like this young man heard, arise. And they will rise. They will rise. Because he is triumphant in his resurrection. His resurrection was the first fruit of that declaration. And because of his resurrection, because he lives, because he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father, because he was victorious over death, we can sing with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you have already received the victory over death. And though you may die physically in this life, you just go on to live. Death is merely a comma that carries you to glory. Death becomes your servant that carries you to Jesus. And so when that grim reaper seeks to, to whisper upon your, your ear that the time is drawing near, you can smile and say, I'm ready for you to carry me home. Because he's triumphant in resurrection. And therefore, Jesus is our only hope in life, just like he was for this widow. And he's our only hope in death, just like he was this young man. And everything else in between, Jesus Christ is our only hope. And therefore, we say with Paul, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Not loss. Because whether I am to live, it is to live to Christ. And whether I am to die, it is to die to Christ. So I say to you today, have you trusted in Christ? Do you walk with this hope? Because this is the hope that Peter said we would have. That people would ask for the reason for the hope that's in you. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you known of his unquestionable sovereignty? Have you felt his remarkable compassion? Have you tasted of his unstoppable power? And have you beheld his triumphant resurrection? Oh, I say to you today, cast yourself upon him and receive the hope that he alone can give. And the reality of he alone who brings death the life. That is your testimony, Christian. You are dead. You are alive. Now go and tell the world His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for what you've done for us in a midst of passion. That you, without any provocation on our behalf, 
The only thing that we did, Lord, was, was, was sin that would seek to repel you from us, not draw you. And yet in your immense love and compassion, you pursued us. You went after your people. You entered into the darkness. You entered into their horror. You entered into their grave and you plucked them out of it with immense grace and mercy and love and compassion. Incredible sovereignty. God, I just, I thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray that there would not be a heart here that isn't moved by your compassion. That isn't moved by what you've done for us. Lord, I, I pray that there's not a heart here that leads today that doesn't know you for, as a Savior and as Lord. Lord, I pray that if there are any of those laying on the bier, headed to the grave, that you would reach down and touch it. That right where they are, that you would make them alive. To speak for you, to obey you, to follow you all of their days. And Lord, for those of us who you have made alive, let the care and compassion that you've shown mark, mark your people. Let us be those who intentionally care and meet the needs of others for the sake of your glory. That others might be drawn to you. That others might come to, to life through you. Lord, help us. Help us surrender to you. Help us live for you all of our days. When we are fearful of the news, frustrated by the politics, fearful of the stresses of the week, unsure of the certainties of tomorrow, let us be reminded we have all the hope we need in you and you alone. Lord, we need you. We thank you. Thank you for being our hope in the midst of a world of despair. Now help us go carry that hope to the world. They may know of it also. In your name I pray. Amen.